When you look at our planet from outer space, astronauts and satellites tell the story of a startling expansion. It's the story in many ways of human progress from a very unique perspective. The greatest change can only be seen at night. Vast cities sprawl out in a web of lights. And as one astronaut named Don Pettit explains, from the first time I flew to the last, the main effect that I saw on Earth was at nighttime. It was the extent of lighting. Astronauts love taking pictures of the Earth at night, but there is one city that stands out among the rest. Pettit explains, because of its size and color and shape and brightness, I like to refer to Las Vegas as the beacon of humanity. I don't know if it's the brightest city on earth, but it is really, really bright. With billions of LED lights and countless billboards and marquees, Las Vegas generates more light per square mile than any other city on earth. At the southern end of the Las Vegas Strip, a beam of light is projected up into the night sky from the Luxor Resort Pyramid. Curved mirrors are positioned to collect light from 39 xenon lamps that create a single intense narrow beam. This one light produces 42 billion candle power watts and the beam is visible from planes flying over Los Angeles, California, 275 miles away. It is an unmissable beacon from the heart of the Mojave Desert. It's kind of comical to think about Las Vegas, <laughs> Sin City, being referred to as the beacon of humanity. You know, as we have seen in the Gospel of John, and as we will continue to see, there is a true beacon of humanity. There is a true light of the world. Jesus is referred to as the one that shines brightly in the midst of the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. But what we see today in our text in John chapter 13 is that though he was that bright light, it was thought at least for a time that the darkness would overcome him. It feels like times the darkness may overcome you, may extinguish the light, and betrayal was a key component in this. And so follow with me in John chapter 13, starting at verse 21, as we read about two betrayals and a new command. This is what it says. It says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, and one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. And so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom 
I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Jesus is now hours away from his arrest and from his crucifixion. He is with the ones who are closest to him. He's with the ones who he has invested a tremendous amount of time, energy, and effort in. He is with the ones that he loves. He's just showed them around the table the nature of service as he washed their feet. And told them that they are to do likewise. They've talked about what it means to be washed clean. And he has assured them that they are washed clean through their faith in him. And as the way of the cross becomes clearer. The way of service and suffering. Jesus predicts the first betrayal. The betrayal of Judas. Now, there are a number of names throughout history in which no one will be happy to name their children. You know who some of those names are. (laughs) Mussolini. (laughs) Hitler. Judas. And the details of this dinner conversation and the betrayal that is about to come give us some important insights. We can make some good observations about what is just happening right here. The dinner conversation is set. They're around the table and there's all of these small details that are worked in. Who is sitting where? Who hears what? Who is leaning up against Jesus? Who is inquiring about what he's saying? 
And all of these details point to a very simple fact that what happened on that night and really throughout the course of the ministry of Jesus were real eyewitness accounts. Jesus' words are not just folklore or allegory. They really happened. And the level of minor detail, who is sitting where and who hears what and who gets up and walks away, all of these things point to the fact that these claims are true. We also observe that Judas, for as long as he had been with Jesus, could hide his motives and his scheme and his plan from the other disciples. In fact, even while they were speaking about it at the table, most of them had no idea what was going on as Judas got up to walk away. You, likewise, can mask things that are really going on in here from the people around you, from men and women, from family and friends. But despite the fact that they didn't know what was happening, Jesus knew. (laughs) And he didn't just have a revelation in that moment. In fact, it looks like Jesus knew all along that Judas would be the one to betray him. All the way back in John chapter 6, verse 64, it says, Jesus speaking to his disciples says, but there are some of you who do not believe For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. John 6, 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. John 13, 11, just earlier in this chapter, he knew who would betray him, and that is why he said, Not all of you are clean. So as we think about the nature of this betrayal, the darkness and sinister dynamic of it, don't be fooled into thinking that somehow God was hijacked by Judas. Don't be tempted to think that Jesus was surprised or that Judas was somehow a true believer who then changed his mind and lost his belief. Jesus knew what was going to happen from the beginning. And in fact... God used the sinister plans of Judas for the sake of ultimate good. It's important to be reminded, isn't it, again and again, that even though that you can fool those around you, that you can't fool God. (laughs) He knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your struggles. He knows your desires. And he knows your beliefs. You cannot fool him. The Josephine Institute is a Los Angeles-based ethics institute. And they, a number of years ago, conducted a character survey. They wanted to do a study on character of high school students. And so they interviewed 30,000 high school students at A hundred randomly selected schools nationwide. And this is what they found. They found that 64% of students said that they had cheated on a test in the past year. 30% had stolen from a store. 42% said that they would lie to save money. 83% said that they had lied to their parents about something significant. And despite their transgressions, 93% of the students 
surveyed said that they were satisfied with their personal ethics and character, with 77% of them adding, I'm better than most people I know. We can be good liars. <laughs> and what those statistics indicate is that we can be good liars to our friends or to our family or to our teachers, to our parents. We can even be good liars to ourselves. But you can't lie to God. <laughs> he knows what's really going on on the inside. He knows. And part of the sober warning about Judas, when you take a big step back and you look at his life, and you think about how for three years he was near to Jesus himself, that you can be near to Jesus and still not have belief in him. That you can be near to Jesus and still not be washed clean. You can look like a follower of Jesus today. You can come from a Christian family. You can have Christian friends. You can do really good things. You can come to church. But it is actually belief that washes you clean from your sin. It's belief in Jesus again and again and again. The message is not just being near. It's not just what you do. It's what's actually happening on the inside. A wonderful surrender of yourself and a belief in this son of God to save you. And Judas, no matter how close he was, still didn't believe. And so as the sting of betrayal sets in, as Jesus troubled in his spirit, as it says in verse 21, as the disciples around the table trying to figure out what is happening, Judas, the betrayer, gets up and he walks away from the table. And it says in verse 30, and it was night. Now that's a peculiar description in the middle of this. It was night. And I don't think it was there just to tell us what time of day it was. Because with the betrayal of Judas, the final steps of the plan to crucify Jesus had been set into motion and they would not be stopped. The day of Jesus working on the earth was coming to an end. And it was night. The idea of Jesus being light in the darkness and Jesus working during the day and not during the night is something that you see again and again throughout this gospel. And it describes the nature of spiritual reality. John chapter 9, Jesus says, We must work with the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John 11, Jesus answered in verse 9, Are there not 12 hours in a day? If anybody walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. John 12, 35, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. 
The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. And so throughout the New Testament overall, and specifically in the Gospel of John, you see Jesus presented as the light, the sinful nature of the world presented as the darkness, that the work of God happens during the day, that the darkness of night is when the work of God ceases. And now Judas stands up to betray the Savior of the world, and it is night. And it looks like the darkness is advancing. Judas goes off into the night and the plan is enacted. The soldiers would be notified. The rulers of the day would have their trial. The people would choose a criminal named Barabbas. The voice of Jesus would seemingly be silenced. Darkness would reign on the earth again. And the Son of God would be killed. The light of the world would be extinguished. Like the smoldering wick of a candle that's been blown out. But then Jesus says something rather striking. It was night in verse 31 Jesus says, now when he had gone out, Jesus says, now is the time the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Now. In the night. Now is Jesus glorified in the darkness. Not when he was doing miracles. Not when he was teaching. Not when he was walking on water. Now he's glorified. Now that it is night. And the road to the cross becomes even clearer. Because how do you overcome the darkness? In the case of Jesus, only by being enveloped by the darkness can Jesus destroy the darkness. The light goes into the darkness to ultimately abolish that darkness. This is the only way that he will be glorified in the midst of such evil. Only by entering into the depths of it will he be able to completely obliterate this darkness. The power of spiritual darkness that shrouds the world would ultimately be destroyed by the light, but only after the light has been covered up, just for a moment, on the cross. But it will shine again at the resurrection And this darkness, so it seems, has an appointed amount of time. It will not reign forever over the earth. It won't reign forever over the light of the world. And it won't reign forever over you. It's night, but it's only night for a short time. In Luke chapter 22, verse 53, Jesus is standing in trial. And he says to those who are his accusers, some very poignant words. He says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. The darkness 
was upon him and the rest of us. And the sting of betrayal was flesh. The pure and the innocent son of God was being tried at night. But the power of darkness would not last forever. It would only last for days. It wouldn't last for years. It wouldn't last for months. It wouldn't even last for a whole week. Three days was the appointed hour of this darkness. And then Jesus would destroy it. The light goes into the darkness to ultimately abolish that darkness. And so verse 31, Jesus starts to help us see what's happening in the sting of betrayal, the fact of night. And he says that he is glorified right now in the middle of this darkness. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who could walk this path. He's the only one who could pay for the sins of us all. He's the only one who could conquer the devil. He's the only one who could overthrow death. He's the only one who could absorb wrath. He's the only one who could spread the light of God forever. And he did so by going into the darkness. And so now, as he succumbed to the servants of the darkness in the worst moments of earth, he would shine the brightest. And as a result, he is uniquely glorified. And so as he's telling his disciples this, undoubtedly confused, he tells them in verses 33 and 36 that where I am going, you cannot follow me now. Take a look at it with me in verse 36. But you will follow after. Peter still grasping at what's happening, responds, well, why not? (laughs) I will lay down my life for you. And here, Jesus predicts the sting of the second betrayal. Do you remember earlier in John chapter 13 when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet and he's going around the table and he comes to Peter and Peter says to him, Lord, will you wash my feet? Peter had a sense of order and propriety and the one who is the most high is not supposed to wash the feet of those who are low. Will you wash my feet? Well, here, in this rich moment of irony, Jesus turns and he responds to Peter in verse 38. Will you lay down your life for me? You can't go where I'm going. You can't do what I'm about to do. You can't abolish the darkness the way that I will. And you won't lay down your life for me. I will lay down my life for you. And in fact, before the rooster crows three times, you will have denied me three times. And so you have two betrayals that are predicted. And a message of glory and hope and command in the middle. The position of these things is very curious. But they help us to understand what's going on. Judas's betrayal was due to unbelief and selfish ambition. Peter's betrayal would be because of fear and consequences of following Jesus. But Jesus in the middle of all of that gives hope. That even in the darkest of night that glory would reign supreme. 
He gives hope that even in the dark nights of your soul, glory would reign supreme. And he does so in a few different ways. He gives a new command. And this command, in the midst of betrayal and suffering, is striking. Verse 34, look at it with me. He says to them, A new command I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, the command to love is not new. You've heard it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might and love your neighbor as yourself. But this command isn't just to love one another as you love yourself. (laughs) This command, the newness of this command, is found in its context of the darkness of night and its context in that we're supposed to love one another like Jesus loves us. Now that's hard And when you stop and when you think about the words and what they actually mean, it causes me anyway to struggle. I I cannot stand cliches because I think they're a way to spiritualize things without much action or thought behind them. And if you're not careful, you've heard this royal command so many times that it might sound like a cliche to you. Yeah, 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 pastor, we're all supposed to love each other. What does that mean? We're supposed to sit around in a circle and hold hands and sing kumbaya? But Jesus is saying that the intense, intentional, life-risking, self-denying, sacrificial love that he shows to you and to me is the type of love that we should choose to engage in with other Christians. And that type of love is undoubtedly costly and you might feel like you don't have the resources to give that kind of love to the people in this room in western Colorado there is a road called the million dollar highway my guess is that most tourists and even some of the residents don't know how the road got its name they probably assumed that the million dollar highway was named as such because it was very expensive to build that's not correct although it probably was very expensive to build because it runs through a very difficult terrain of the mountains at high altitude but the real reason why it's called the million dollar highway is because the waste material from the ore in gold mines was used as the bed for that highway. And not all the gold dust and all the gold nuggets were removed by the mining processes of the day and certainly not by the mining processes of our day. And as a result, there is in Colorado a partial roadbed that is littered with gold. It's probably worth a lot more than a million dollars. It isn't the cost that gave it its name, but rather... It's what's inside. And the same is true for this royal law of love, that you love one another as I have loved you. Sure, it is costly, but what gives it the name is not what it costs. It's what it's made of. Because this command 
by God to the people of God is made up of God. The God who is love. And John goes on to write about this. Some of you studied 1 John this fall. John writes in 1 John chapter 2, At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brothers in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And friends, so this is why in the midst of an incredibly difficult year with a pandemic, with political division. Again and again and again, we've been reminding you, we've been reminding each other of what it looks like to serve each other. What does it look like to strive for Christian unity? What does it look like for love as we've been trying to hold this church and this Christian community together around the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and his word? To walk in the light and not to walk in the darkness in a time where there are so many groups Groups of people who are splintering away off into the night. Where there are churches, I heard of just another one this last week, that in the midst of political tension decided to splinter away into the night and meet no more together as Christians. It is this type of love that Jesus says distinguishes you from the rest of the world. That you would look at the people around you in this room and you'd say, I'm going to risk for you, I'm going to love for you, I'm going to sacrifice for you, I'm going to be intense for you, I'm going to give what I have for you because he gave everything for me. And so live in the light. A second encouragement he gives us is found at the end of this passage in the beginning of the next in chapter 14, verse 1. Look at it with me and we conclude here. You know what betrayal feels like? You know the anguish that it causes you. You know what uncertainty feels like. You know what frustration and suspicion feels like. Many of us feel it even in these days. And Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He was was troubled in his spirit. Verse 21, when you think about difficulty and uncertainty and anger and pain as you go through life, it can feel like the darkness is going to win. It can feel like the plan of God is distant. It can feel like there is no light left to cling to. But the words of Jesus ring true. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe in God when the fear of COVID-19 weighs upon you. Believe in God when your family is separated due to politics or pandemics. Believe in God 
when the dark shroud of depression is upon you. Believe in God when political unrest seems to rule the headlines. Believe in God when an aspect of the way of life that you love feels threatened. And believe in God when uncertainty surrounds your future or the future of ones that you love. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Satan has not won. Your future is secure in Christ. The light will shine the brightest when the days are the darkest. And the light does indeed destroy that darkness. So believe in God and believe also in me. Let's pray together. Father God, we cling to your promises. We confess the glory of your Son, the only one who can walk this path, the only one who shines brightly in the midst of the darkness, the only one that gives us a sure hope and a future. And today we say together, we believe in him. Help us in our moments of weakness. God, I pray for any here today who has been near to Jesus but has not yet believed. May today be the day of true and genuine surrender and belief. May your spirit work in hearts even now. Father, encourage us with great confidence that as the days look entirely dark for some, that the glorious, majestic sun does indeed and will continue to shine brightly forever. And God, help us to love in ways that we have not loved before, to choose this way of life, that you would be glorified and that the world would see you through your representatives here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.